Hello and welcome to Phoenix Talks, where we get academics and cinephiles to chat with us about past, current, and upcoming films. My name is Becky Jones, and here today we have Hila Shaha, a lecturer in English literature at the Moffey University, to talk to us about the man who invented Christmas, biopics, Charles Dickens, and a Christmas carol. Hello, my name is uh, Dr. Hila Shaha. I'm a specialist in adaptation studies and uh, also into biopics, so uh, analyzing how authors are adapted on screen. Yeah. Uh, so starting off today um, with regards to the man who invented Christmas, it's a common trope, um, at least in my experience, for author biopics to use one of the author's most famous works as a sort of frame for the story. Um, so showing this sort of direct connection between their life events and thus like manifesting in their work. Um, as someone who's got even more expertise in this sort of area, why do you think that that is as a trend? I think there are practical but also cultural reasons for it. And the practical reasons are that film companies and directors and production teams like the idea that art is personal and deeply personal and that it's uh, also easier for them to turn it into a narrative that way. So it's really hard to condense cultural issues engaged within the text mm-hmm. um, and much easier to say, well, this is because this author was in love at this time. Mm-hmm. So there are practical reasons in that sense. But I think the deeper cultural reasons are that we like the idea that, that art comes from an internal self, that art is an individual enterprise. And it's complicated to start considering the idea that art is collaborative or that culture, ideology, his, history affects how texts are represented. Mm-hmm. So it's much preferable to, to invest in the myth of mm-hmm. the individual genius creating this individual piece of work on their own with yeah. their own genius. Yeah. Uh, I think that's primarily what drives a lot of biopics when they <laughs> represent authors and their texts this way. Yeah. It's it's only in the sort of comedic ones where it's the money that makes them yes. create the art. Yes, like Shakespeare Love <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. pokes fun at the whole industry around authors. Yeah. However, it can only be comedy. It can't yeah. be serious. Exactly. You can't yes. have actual authors writing because they need to make money. Yes. <laughs> I can't mention that. Mm-hmm. Art is beyond money. <laughs> Which does sort of happen in this movie. Yes. Um, so do we know, actually, the, the film kind of depicts his, his family life, his relationship with his father, and sort of couches that within, within the context of The Christmas Carol. Yes. Um, do we actually know much about Dickens' family and his life beyond his, his written works? Um, okay. It's complicated in the sense that we do, we do have objective facts about his life. However, Dickens was such a master manipulator, and I don't say this in... In a, in a way that cast him in a bad light. He was just deeply, deeply aware of author persona and branding himself in his own time so that everything that we know about him is to some extent mediated by how he fashioned himself in his own time. Um, and to give you an example, um, a lot of his work was adapted into theatre during his own time and he had a heavy hand in instructing uh how this happened and how this should be exploited to the maximum and he went on talking tours around these adaptations so he was very aware that he had a persona to project and certain things that he was ashamed of that he wanted to hide Mm -hmm. so things like his father's situation and his poverty um, for a few years was hidden for many years until he allowed it to be revealed in, in a biography, he helped to co-author, shall <laughs> uh-huh. we say. So we have objective facts, however, 
that object, those objective facts mm. are always going to be mediated by Dickens. Okay. Uh, to some extent. So it's not so much um, side accounts of his name on a list of boys at a workhouse or some other sort of uh, testimony to, oh yeah, that Dickens lad, I knew him when. Instead, it's him controlling his own story. I would say it's very much him controlling his own story. I mean, his daughters and um, his, his, his family has said certain things, however, mm. what we remember about him is what he has decided will be the narrative. Ah, okay. So are there any sort of things that sort of contradict the image he's presented or just sort of paint... It, it, it confirms it, but goes a little further. I think... Um, well, his mistress, ah. uh, <laughs> shall we say, mm. is probably a prime example um, because he's so obsessed with domesticity. Mm. <coughs> However, his mistress and the relationship he had with her contradicts that, shall we say. Mm. Because um, he did leave the family, as it were, mm. and uh, there was a strained relationship with his wife because of it. Um, so it, it aligns with the idea that he does manipulate the domestic setting for his own purpose and his mm. own image. However, I think his modern day persona uh, to to modern audiences is very much as a complex genius mm -hmm. so to some extent that yeah. works for him in a contemporary era it's, perhaps not yeah. in his own yeah where it would have been very much a, a massive footballer whereas now it is like of course he had a mistress of course yes an artistic genius they all sleep yes on. exactly and it kind of works to feed that idea of the artist needing mm. to express themselves in various ways <laughs> sounds about right yes um, so what, the Christmas Carol at the end of the Man Who Invented Christmas, they kind of um, they have these titles explaining how uh, it was a big hit overnight. Like yes. that 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 next morning phew, sold out. It, it changed how people kind of understood Christmas. They became very generous and things like that. Um, so I was wondering, um, was the Christmas Carol as big a hit in its time as the film sort of promoting? And did does it still kind of hold its popularity today? And did it have the kind of impact culturally? that the film is kind of ascribing to it? The answer to this is both yes and no. Okay. The yes part is that it was extremely popular from the time it was published, mm. pretty much. It sold out in a few days. So I think it was released like in, in late to mid-December and it sold out, the first edition. And it's never been out of print ever since. Okay. Um, it was big in cultural impact in the sense that I think t Dickens had good timing mm. Because the time was already ripe in the Victorian era to revive Christmas, certain Christmas traditions, yeah. and align them with national identity and align them with um, domesticity and goodwill and mm. altruism. He just came at the right time, as it were. Mm. So ascribing that whole tradition <laughs> to him alone is, is inaccurate. Right. But however, what he did was he gave it narrative form. Gotcha. And that's the power of mm. good stories that come at the right time, is that uh, they they capture the atmosphere of their times and give it symbolism, imagery that we can have, and characters we can hang on to. Exactly, yeah. So it did have a very big impact in terms of that. Um, and linguistically, I mean, saying Merry Christmas yeah. was not that popular until it was published. Oh, really? Yeah, oh. so he gave, he gave a, a linguistic trope shall right. we say he gave the, the cultural mood linguistic trope yeah. he didn't invent it no however he he made it popular through that gotcha. story yeah and, and the film as well had that moment towards the end where it's just like oh that's lovely oh yeah it's called the tenenbaum there it's, it's a german <laughs> christmas tree yeah I mean, the queen has one so soon everyone yes uh will so it kind of is situating that 
even indicating within the film that there was a shift in how Christmas yes. was done, for lack yes. of a better term. Well, it was made more family-oriented. It also was made more to do with, like, a community-minded oh. traditions and um, with, you know, carols, with things that combine people together. And that very much works with the Victorian era's refashioning of a lot of things to make them more domestic, more homely, mm-hmm. um, as part of their national character of England. So it was good timing. However, Dickens is reflective of his times, so um, yeah. and also very good at at um, inventing images that last and stick. Yes, very much. Um, so, sort of following on that, the works that followed *Christmas Carol* were they as influential? Were they as big of of a hit? It, the film sort of starts with his Oliver Twist and then has three flops, um, which they list, and probably a lot of the people in the audience would only recognize maybe Chesilwick mm. of those three. I would say that the Christmas Carol is pretty much right up there with his most popular, <laughs> perhaps being competed with by you know David Copperfield. And however, I don't. In terms of sales, it's hard to say because he didn't actually make that much money himself personally oh. from a Christmas Carol. Right. Um, however, probably what it gave him was a, a name big enough mm. to move on to publish. Uh, works that could do better for him later on mm-hmm. and um, he did go on a lot of talking tours afterwards in the Amer- in America yeah. and England so it made him a celebrity right. in that sense I'm not sure though that we can neatly say that there were works afterwards that were that did better or mm-hmm. worse but I can definitely say he's probably right up there with right. his most popular and okay. most successful work mm-hmm. Um, it does sort of start showing that he was doing those talking tours in America for Oliver Twist, starting out and being yeah. like, the Americans are all of this. I can't yeah. wait to get home. Yes, yes. <laughs> Just can't stand yes. how crazy the Americans are. Um, so was he already doing a lot of that sort yes, of commercial promotion with his earlier work? He was. Okay. I think he was aware of the power of um, the author. Mm. Like as a god, like, <laughs> <laughs> and he was aware of the power of narrative mm. and the way that you can uh, build investment loyalty with people for uh, through narrative and introduce them to complex ideas and ideologies that you because he wanted to t- uh, actually to turn uh, the issues in the Christmas Carol into a pamphlet, yeah. however, decided to actually use the imaginative format. So he was very much aware that there are multiple ways to reach people, one mm-hmm. of them is through yourself through yourself as the figure of the author, but also through narrative, through the imagination. And, I mean, he did it throughout his career. Mm. Uh, it's just that Christmas Carol probably gave him a better platform. <laughs> yeah, a really good boost. And he even, like, his wife kind of chides him for writing speeches because he's constantly christening things or being asked to speak at things. Yes. And, and he's, he's lauded. Uh, like, we don't necessarily see him giving any of these speeches, but we hear the after effects of everyone being like, oh, what an excellent speech. I really enjoyed your speaking. So it does hint at him being a, a sort of notable public speaker yes. um, within that frame. But then also emphasizing his sort of social mindedness with having him chase after the man trying to sell the two children as chimney sweeps or um, the fact that he wanted this book initially to just like crush the the heart of these like miserly social people um and a lot of his books do have that sort of touch of social commentary do you think christmas carol is one of the strongest because it actually the protagonist is kind of usually the antagonist of his other works as this miserly uncaring person or are there other that are stronger in their social effect I think it's the simplest mm. uh, 
exploration of it. What I mean by that is that he creates very clear archetypes. It's very fairy tale like and very based on this folk tale tradition. Mm. Uh, just even in terms of its rep- repetition of like threes. Yeah. And, and I think because it's the simplest, it's probably the most culturally uh, dominant. There are other texts that explore these issues better mm. um, and even take the ideas further of class and poverty and access to social welfare and things like that. However, um, they probably wouldn't have the same effect with the public because what people latch on to dominantly is archetypes. Yeah. Um, so it isn't the strongest in literary form, but it is the strongest in cultural form. Right, yeah. It, it had enough sort of upbeat wit to it yes. instead of it just being a really dark, depressing book like the whole way through. Yes. Talking about how horrible society is right now, um, which was probably a bit of a downer and most people reading books probably were looking for that kind of social criticism. I mean, Scrooge is essentially like a black and white character. Yes. It's either all good or bad. Yeah. Um, whereas other characters that, that are... That, that explore the issue of rising up in class or the or the working class and mm-hmm. poverty are complex three-dimensional characters. Usually they are male. I have to yes. say a lot of his female characters are very simplistic, okay. black and white, but yeah. his male characters are very complex in mm-hmm. their explorations of these issues, whereas Scrooge is not. Yeah. That's probably why he works. Yeah. <laughs> He's like a fairy tale character exactly, in the children's yeah. book. Very, very understandable and able to be read to children, which yes. ups its sale values um, in a lot of publishing and yes. at the time. If you could read it, even now with the sort of concept of ratings, if you can make it a wider rating, which means you have to dumb down the language or the you know more serious stuff, you get a bigger audience, you get better sales. Yes. Um, and he was probably very conscious of that in his writing and trying to get get it out to the public. Yes, because... Yeah, because he, he, he thought about... That's why he turned down the idea of the political pamphlet mm-hmm. in his head. Because he wanted to actually write something yeah. about social uh, welfare to the poor that, that would actually be read. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or another pamphlet. Like, no, no one's going to care no about No one's that. going... I mean, yeah. pe- people, people are attracted to bright and shiny things. <laughs> they, yeah. want, they want their imagination mm-hmm. stirred in order to have their emotions stirred. Yeah, and, and he definitely went all out. It, it does emphasise the the impact he wanted this book to make visually as well as sort of within the reader's mind by having the best illustrator, this fancy cover. Yes. With his, like, he had this sort of vision of what he wanted it to be and it does sort of manifest in this very, like, it is a very pleasant to look at work. Yes. Like the illustrators, the, the emboss work and all of that. Um, had he put that effort in his other books or was this kind of a unique case or did he always go all out for his... What he usually did... well. What he did with a lot of his now well-known novels mm. was release them in installments. Oh, okay. So they weren't yeah. like fully fleshed final products initially. Mm-hmm. With the Christmas Carol, it, his publisher didn't invest a lot of money from, from memory. I don't think he invested. They invest a lot of money mm-hmm. in in the first printing because right. they because he wasn't doing well financially yeah. for yeah. them. Yeah. Why would they? <laughs> um, then it sold out within a few days. Mm-hmm. And that's when the pretty edition gotcha. came out. Um, I, I, I think because it was like a fully fledged story that was released as mm-hmm. a rounded thing that wasn't released in installments, they they could do that yeah. with a, as an aesthetic object. And it's around Christmas time, and the whole tradition of giving Christmas presents was trying to be revived in that period mm. as well. So it worked for its time, particularly. Um, but one of the the canny things about Dickens with his other work is that he he did create suspense by releasing mm. them in installments and yeah. changing the plot 
as he was going along based on what the audience were reacting wow. to the the previous chapter or mm. the previous installment so he he worked both <laughs> both ways wow yeah he was conscious of the aesthetic optic but also conscious mm. of the narrative yeah over the aesthetic optic it's almost a very sort of reflective of a modern author um were they were we to sort of revive the concept of the serial in that way or even um television shows where yes. they'll get that they'll get cancelled if no one's watching <laughs> or they'll, they'll keep a character because everyone loves that character now who they thought to just have a throwaway yes that's exactly what he did yeah it, yes. it's very sort of modern his response and, and like testing go on uh, nope they didn't like that where uh, <laughs> and they, they sort of play on that with, with his friend referencing uh, killing of Nell <laughs> and he's just like I stand by that decision <laughs> you can't kill Tiny Tim um, so yeah, he's definitely an interesting author, um, very much almost ahead of his time. He's a very, very canny marketer. Yeah, very. He knew what he was doing yes. and um, definitely wound up probably helping him live on into the century and still being the, the still in release author that he is and probably isn't going to be going out of print anytime soon. No, no I mean, <laughs> he's just because he's so prolific yeah. that... His stories are just there. Yeah. They're there. Whereas <laughs> other authors didn't create just as much as, as, as mm-hmm. he did. But also they didn't market themselves this way yeah. for whatever reasons. I mean, some couldn't. But I think he was just really conscious of mm-hmm. framing yourself for an audience. And he didn't view it as a false thing mm. or like manip- even a manipulation. Yeah, yeah, he, no. he viewed it as the natural extension of art and narrative and social responsibility mm. of the author. Yeah. Um, which, in, in lots of regards, it could be very true. Um, you, don't, you don't have to sort of be that isolated artiste who, who yes. rejects the people that enjoy his work, because that's not how he does it. Instead, he's the kind of author who's just like, I want to write things people are going to read. I want to write things that are effective work. And yes. to do that, I need to understand who's reading my work, um, which makes sense, really. And, you know, if he's coming from a background of journalism, yeah, very he, much, he's yeah. very much aware that the written word has power and it can be used politically mm-hmm. but that you actually need to sweeten the politics with something yeah <laughs> pamphlet versus christmas yes <laughs> very much well thank you very much for coming and, and speaking with us uh, i hope you have a merry christmas <laughs> thank you. a big thanks to hilla for speaking to me today the man who invented christmas will be at phoenix cinema lester from friday december 8th to thursday the 14th as dan stevens christopher Plummer, and jonathan price is directed by Baharat Nalari. Our thanks to co-producer Peter Simkuti and song credit to Badly Stuffed Animals for their song, Vanilla Ice Cream. Hope you tune in next time for more talks on films, filmmaking, and the events happening around Phoenix Cinema Lester. Until then, happy watching, happy Christmas, and happy New Year.